Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Pim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. If you're looking for international exposure when it comes to your bond portfolio, you want to ask Eric Stein. He is portfolio manager and co-director of Global Fixed Income for Eaton Vance, a whole company helping to manage more than $430 billion of comp- of of customer assets. And uh, they're, of course, based in Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. We welcome all of our listeners uh, in Boston and around the world. And uh, Eric, maybe just talk a little bit about this new fund. This is the Eaton Vance International Emerging Markets Local Income Fund. And it is uh, focused not only uh, on on, uh, on bonds that are outside the United States, what I'm getting at is it's in local currency, currency. correct? Correct. So, you know, we've been running a, a local currency strategy for, for U.S. investors uh, dating back actually to June of 2007. We just uh, launched a, a version of that for overseas investors, but it's dominated, um, it's uh, denominated, I should say, in local currency. So there's two different types of emerging market debt. There's dollar debt, which trades at a spread to treasuries like U.S. high yield bonds or U.S. corporates. And then there's locally denominated emerging market debt. And so that's debt issued, let's say, by the government of Brazil, but not issued in U.S. dollars, issued in Brazilian reais. And it's certainly a more volatile part of the emerging market debt asset class, but I also think it's one where return potential is also greater. It's also one that relies heavily on emerging market currency performance against the dollar. And I'm wondering, you know, this this implies to me that you see a weaker dollar going forward against these emerging markets currencies. What's giving you that confidence? So you're exactly right. It's certainly based on emerging market currency strength or emerging market currencies just being flat and you're earning a higher rate of interest. But if you go back to 2013, 14, or 15, when emerging market currencies were weak and the dollar was strong, that would be a headwind for a strategy like this. So I always tell people, you know, it's it's certainly one of my favorite parts of the fixed income markets, but I caution people that if you can't have a drawdown in your fixed income, this probably isn't the right sector for you. I always caution you because of the currency component, as you mentioned. The other thing, we had uh, Bloomberg Intelligence's Damien Sassauer on yesterday, and he was talking about liquidity in emerging markets credit. He was saying he's watching uh, the bid-ask spreads widen out. This is sort of a measure of the difference between what pe- the prices that people are asking for on bonds and what they're actually able to get. Um, are you concerned about that? And how do you sort of plan around that in a fund like this? Yeah, so I think when you, know, when you talk about bid-offer spreads, I think in EM credit, I think of that more as sovereign credit. You know, certainly all fixed income markets have their liquidity challenges. I think you know, on our Eaton Vance global income team, we, we put a big focus on trading. We have a 20 24-hour trading desk based not only out of Boston, but London and Singapore. And we're always looking for different liquidity sources. So the interesting thing about local markets is it's not only trading with large banks. There's also local players onshore uh, in some of these countries uh, that we invest in. So the liquidity is just different than I'd say it would be in U.S. high-yield bonds or even emerging market dollar bonds. What are some of the characteristics of the bonds that would go into this portfolio? So they would be uh, you know, issued by uh, governments of emerging market countries, so you know, countries 
countries in, let's say, Latin America, Eastern Europe, Africa, Asia, uh, and they'd be issued in local currency. So Brazilian reais, uh, Turkish lira, Indonesian rupiah, and we think of them as having two main risks. You have local interest rate or local duration risk, and you also have currency risk as well. Okay, but in that uh, in that context of risk, what do you set as parameters? Are you looking at shorter duration, longer duration? Uh, I mean, and debt can be funded in a variety of different ways and secured in different ways. Yeah, so certainly there is duration. There's local duration to these assets. So it's, okay, how do Brazilian interest rates move or Indonesian interest rates move? And sometimes there can be correlations with U.S. interest rates. We have seen that in the past. We saw that in 2013. I actually think what's interesting is this year here in 2018, despite uh, all the volatility we've seen in U.S. treasuries, higher U.S. yields, negative return, uh, let's say, on the Barclays Ag, uh, you know, yields in some of these emerging market countries continue to come down. Uh, they sold off a bunch in 13. Their central banks had to hike rates to defend currencies, and now they've been able to cut rates for the past couple of years. What's your most recent high conviction bet? <laughs> so, so maybe one I could talk about is India. So India uh, is a country, uh, you know, not without risk. There's always things that, that that go on sometimes that are frustrating to those of us that that spend a lot of time following India. But you know, you get seven and a half or seven point six percent on government bond yield. It's not in the index. So I think that's a kind of a specialty of our whole team is looking for bonds that are not necessarily in the index. And India, despite being uh, a really large country, isn't in the index. And real quick, what's your biggest contrarian bet? Biggest contrarian bet? Um, you know, we're starting to like uh, the Philippines peso. Uh, it's actually one of the currencies in Asia that uh, people like to short a lot. And there are certainly issues. They used to have a current account surplus, and then it went to deficit. We think their import number is actually going to be very high in the fourth quarter um, because of a new tax regime. And people are going to get all flustered about that, and the currency is selling off. But ultimately, there's some inflation there. We think the central bank, the BSP is what they call the central bank in Philippines, they'll have to raise rates. Uh, that should lead the currency strength. Thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> Truly a pleasure speaking with you. Eric Stein, Portfolio Manager and Co-Director of Global Fixed Income at Eaton Vance, which manages about $430 billion and is based in Boston. But he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. This is Bloomberg Markets with Pim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. Obamacare is getting a pretty profound test with a move by an Idaho-based insurer. Here to talk about that is Max Neeson, uh, who covers the pharmaceutical industry and all things healthcare for Bloomberg Gadfly, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Max, this is a fascinating story because it really goes to the heart of the issue that uh, insurers are looking at whether they will be able to offer people lower cost uh, insurance plans if they are healthier and they'll get less coverage, but that means higher premiums for sicker people. Tell us about this, please. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what what Blue Cross in, in Idaho is doing is, is pretty uh, clearly and blatantly um, in violation of a number of of statutes in the Affordable Care Act, namely uh, no no limits on spending, um, having to provide the same variety of coverage to people, not denying coverage for sick people for plans. Um, and the issue is that if you offer that kind of insurance and ACA-compliant insurance at the same time, inevitably healthy people are going to flock to those cheaper plans, leaving sicker people in the ACA-compliant plans, skyrocketing premiums. So you, you can't really have it both ways, and, and that seems to be what uh, they're trying to do in Idaho. Uh, the question is whether it'll actually happen um, you know, due to, to legal threat or, or action by the government. 
Max, could you outline what this plan would look like for someone that is shopping for health insurance? Yeah, so I, I think they're going to offer um, a bunch of different plans, but the general idea basically is that you know if you're someone who's young and healthy, you might pick a plan um, that, for example, uh, doesn't cover certain types of drug, doesn't cover certain types of care, um, offers more kind of limited and basic skeletal care as opposed to the sort of comprehensive benefits that you have under the ACA. Okay, but but what, I mean, I'm looking here, for example, it says the proposed plans have a $1 million annual per person limit to how much care the insurer will pay for. So if you're not going to get any, if you're not going to be ill or you think you're not going to be ill or need more than a million dollars, what do we know what the premium is, for example, on a monthly basis? Um, don't know yet, but I imagine that it would be substantially lower than something on the, the, the ACA because those plans literally, you know, they have a set of 10 essential health benefits that they're required to cover. Um, things like, you know, for example, maternity care. Um, someone who doesn't want that, doesn't plan on having a kid, um, they won't be paying for that. So that's the appeal, theoretically. But the problem is, uh, you know, the idea behind the ACA is that you make everyone pay for that. No, no, no I understand yeah, yeah, that. I mean, that's the that's the whole idea of insurance, right? Sure. I mean, you've got this bigger pool, but I'm just trying to look at it from the consumer's point of view that someone is currently faced, let's say, with, you know, paying 600 or $700 a month for a plan when they have a high deductible they kind of look at it and they say, gee, why am I paying six, seven hundred bucks a month when I've got this really high deductible? So I'll never really end up using the facilities unless unless something. Well, but but of course, you don't know that in the future. Right. You don't know whether you're going to be ill or not. Well, I think that there's a big question. Max, you were talking about the legal challenge to this. And to me, that's the most interesting part, because as you said, this is in blatant violation of the uh, Obamacare plan. Who, which legal agency would be the one to go after them? And since President Trump has voiced support for this type of structure of a plan, will they go after them? So that, that's really the question. Um, so Alex Azar, the, the new Secretary of, of Health and Human Services, had said that, you know, you have to enforce the rule of law. Uh, the question is what exactly that means from him, whether they'll do it. Because HHS, you know, is the regulatory agency that oversees this. It's their job to enforce the law of the land. Um, but, you know, as, as we've seen in other areas, they, they have a certain amount of latitude, but the amount of legal risk here is really acute. You know, the insurer is likely to get sued if they offer plans that um, sick people are ineligible for. They impose this lifetime limit. Uh, Idaho is likely to get sued for allowing them to do it. And then if HHS isn't informing, uh, in enforcing the law, there's legal risk to the Trump administration as well. Okay, well, let's say they don't enforce it. Do you expect other health insurance companies to follow suit? Um, at a minimum, you know, just about every insurer on the exchanges in Idaho is likely to, to jump in as well, because if they don't and they only offer ACA compliant insurance, um, basically everyone's going to get siphoned off into this third party, um, into the, the Blue Cross plan at this point that's offering this type of insurance. So that's just a losing situation for them. Uh, they'll have to balance basically the legal risk of offering those plans against the possibility that they'll only have um, you know a very sick and expensive to cover population left for them um, and be forced to jack up premiums, but maybe not be able to keep up anyway because they have no idea how to price this market because you've never seen anything like it before. 
Thanks very much for bringing this to our attention and uh, giving us this detail. Very interesting. Max Neeson is our biotechnology, pharmaceutical, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. And you can follow Max on Twitter at Max Neeson, N-I-S-E-N. Much appreciated. Coming up on Bloomberg Markets, we're going to be speaking with Axel Merck. He is the president and the chief investment officer of Merck Investments. We'll talk about the volatility in the value of the U.S. dollar and whether gold would be something to buy for your portfolio. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Pim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Markets is brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network, the broker-dealer RIA, who has been putting relationships first since 1979. Find out why the industry's most satisfied advisors are head over heels about them. Visit Commonwealth.com. Well, just taking a look at the value of gold since the beginning of the year, it has increased about 4%. Is that really a way to diversify your portfolio away from the risk of stocks and bonds? Here to help us answer this and many other questions is Axel Merck. He is the president and the chief investment officer of Merck Investments, and he can be followed on Twitter at Axel Merck, based in San Francisco. Axel, thanks very much for being with us. Talk a little bit about diversification and when people diversify, but really they're not doing a good job at it. Yeah, great to be with you. Well, let's answer the second part of your question first. Uh, the markets have moved relentlessly higher, and uh, obviously, if you've done anything other than buy, buying the S&P, you underperformed. And so some people say they diversify to bonds, but in truth, many of them have been grabbing yield. And when you when you buy junk bonds, as a more extreme example of that, they tend to be highly correlated with risk assets. So it's been very, very difficult to get proper diversification. And of course, why should you diversify when volatility is low? The problem with that, of course, is at some point, and we saw that in recent weeks, volatility edges higher. And as that happens, people realize they're misallocated. And that sets in motion this grinding process that they're struggling to find diversification. And as people are realizing in recent weeks that's not so easy. Um, and you mentioned gold in the beginning. Gold has historically had a correlation of zero to the S&P in the long run. Um, and in the context of volatility, if I can continue here, um, gold doesn't have cash flow. And that's a good thing because when volatility rises, cash flows get discounted more. So all risk assets tend to get banged on the head. Uh, everything else equal anyway, whereas gold in comparison does well because it doesn't have the cash flow. So when risk premium arise, gold does well. And that is the reason why in every bear market since the early 70s, gold has done well, with the big exception, of course, of the early 80s, where real interest rates went very, very high. Okay, Axel, uh, full disclosure, gold, I find incredibly confusing. And I always thought of it as an inflation hedge. And uh, exactly as you're saying, you know, it, it should do well in uh, times of inflation and growth, uh, possibly even better than, say, a fixed income instrument, uh, especially tied to riskier credit. And yet you really haven't seen that substantial of a rally in gold on the heels of the sell-off. And uh, yesterday we had a guest on who is saying this is because interest rates are rising in the U.S. Us, people are able to actually get more income. Uh, so because it's not an interest-producing security, uh, it's sort of being punished. Make make this make sense for me, please. <laughs> well, isn't that incredible? This 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 brick, this piece, shiny piece of metal that doesn't do anything, doesn't ever change, is so confusing because it's the one thing that's constant. It's the world around it that's so confusing. And and so um, and and obviously the price of gold is determined just like everything else by supply and demand. 
And so the question is, is there reason to, to have more of gold than this or that? And, and clearly, there are other things that are also, quote unquote, inflation hedges, but neither are those perfect hedges. People have historically said, hey, buying um, uh, real estate, buying equities might be inflation hedges. And so um, I, I tried to put it into this as volatility framework, because that one, I think, makes perfect sense. It doesn't have cash flow, and therefore, the, the discounting works differently. Now, um, in, the, in the context of higher inflation, first of all, inflation is still very low. And, and so there's fear of it ticking up. Um, and we're not talking about hyperinflation here. We're talking about the Federal Reserve potentially um, being a tad more assertive. And if there's one big competition to gold, it is higher real interest rates. And so if you get compensated for holding cash, well, you don't need to hold something that doesn't throw off cash. Uh, the reason why gold has held up very well anyway, in my view anyway, is because people think that there's a limit to how much tightening the Federal Reserve can do. And so, uh, and we've also seen the dollar has been weakening despite higher rates. And of course, a lot of that has to do with how much has been priced in. But if, just for the kind of in the context of the recent uh, uh, bout of volatility and, and tandem we had in the markets, I take something that's kind of boring any time over something that moves a thousand points in, 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 in a few minutes. And so it does play its role as a diversifier. But, um, but this is an environment, I think, where everybody, no matter what you hold, you're going to be tested. Um, correlations are breaking down, have been breaking down. And so you're going to be tested with whatever view you have on whatever asset. Uh, you've got to think, have a longer term framework to think about what you want to do, how much you allocate to stocks, bonds, gold, or whatever it might be. Um, because if you just look at any one data point, any one day, um, I think people will be rightfully confused. Oxfell, if you go back about five years, and you look at the value of gold, it was trading at around $1,605 for an ounce. Right now, we're at 1352 What do you say to people that maybe bought gold then and now look at their holdings and say, gee, I can't buy the same amount in dollar terms that I bought back then? And the value of the U.S. dollar may have even declined since then. So as a result, I even have less money. Is gold a means to an end or is it an end in itself? I actually just got a message from somebody who said, oh, I loaded up on too much gold and got burned during those days that you just referenced. And so even when the price of gold goes higher, they might have to sell some of it. And uh, and, and you, you get that from time to time. It, it comes down to investment process, right? If you um, take take if you bought stocks in 2007 and 2008 and 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 had were fully loaded in stocks, well, you lose a lot of money. Then people tell you to double down at the bottom. That is completely irresponsible because you lost half of your net worth and you lost more than you could afford to lose. So you've got to pare down your risk profile. So similarly, if you loaded up on too much of anything, including gold, um, on the top and haven't diversified as, as prices were moving, well, odds are that you lost more than you could afford to lose. Yeah. But that doesn't make the investment a bad investment. It means that you don't have a discipline and to rebalance your portfolio and, and to, to understand the risks. And, and what, what happened in gold at the time, volatility was too low and people weren't aware of the risks. Well, anybody who buys anything, including gold, should be aware these things can be very volatile. And people only realize that on the way down when volatility spikes. It doesn't make the investment 
worse, but it does remind people that they're human and are not following the process, and notably they they didn't take chips off the table now either um, during, the, during the bull yeah. market. And hopefully they got the wake-up call of late in, in the markets here. Axel Merck, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure having you on. Axel Merck is President and Chief Investment Officer of Merck Investments in San Francisco, California. It's not gold that's confusing. It's the world around it. Let's turn to farming equipment, Deer and Company, uh, which focuses on supplying farmers and uh, their infrastructure. Their shares are up nearly 4% after uh, beating estimates with their earnings. Karen Eubelhart joins us now, our industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, always full of insight. Karen, we're so happy to have you here. So uh, what's going on here? Just sort of set the stage for uh, why, why the outlook in general for farming is turning up. Uh, you know, it's it's largely replacement demand. Um, they are in both construction and ag, and metals are surging. Um, so, and the construction business is surging. But, you know, grain co- commodity prices have not really done anything. But the farmers have not bought, particularly the large farmers, for about three years. And they there's the technology has changed a lot. Um, you know, their equipment's getting a little old. And I think they've just and they have enough confidence to get out there and start buying. Well, the company already said, what, sales were up like 23 24% for the quarter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, well, there's two things happening there. The end markets are not up that much, but deer underproduced for three years. So they get a kick, uh, an extra kick from ramping back up to, uh, you know, retail demand. So internally, they're going to do a lot better than the end market this year. So what's the breakdown for deer as far as where they get their revenue if you look at construction versus farming? And uh, which is the brighter spot heading into the rest of the year? Uh, you know, from a margin perspective, you want deer, you want ag to grow, and uh, because that's eighty percent of deer um, right now on a sales basis. Well, it's actually seventy after Vertkin, and it's still um, you know about sixty-five, seventy percent of earnings. And the one thing they did say is large equipment is doing much better than they expected, and that's margin. They don't, they you know they'll make a ten percent margin this year in ag, in um, construction, and they'll do you know of. 14% margin in ag. So, you know, because of the big stuff. Well, they talked about agriculture and turf equipment sales. I think they were up something like 18 to 20%, but then even more so construction and forestry equipment posting increase of nearly 60%. That's the that's the merger. Um, but it's still up. If you take out Vertkin, it's still up about 24%. But if you look at CATS numbers, which come out monthly, they're up 30% in, in uh, overall. And every region is up at least 25%. Um, and both construction and mining, construction matters more to deer, is up, uh, are both surging. So um, you could see it in CATS numbers a couple of weeks ago, and it's flowing through. Deer seeing it in construction as well. So ex-Vertkin, it's still up a lot. So with construction, I mean, we just got uh, housing starts that were the strongest uh, in several years. Um, What's driving the sort of optimism on that side? You know, housing's been pretty good for a while. Um, and, I, ju- you know, jobs, um, a little bit more money, um, you know, and uh, just an overall more optimistic outlook about the U.S. economic growth, I think, is helping. And Deer is very sensitive to housing, um, even more so than CAT. So. And I just want to mention, you keep talking about the Vertin 
acquisition. This was the German company, right? And uh, about a four point six billion dollar deal, yeah, I think, yes, something like yes, that, right? Yes, and they and they have very high margins and the road machinery. And Deer wasn't really in that business, and they have like a fourteen fifteen percent operating margin. Deer doesn't break ten in their construction. So good from an end market perspective, a regional perspective, as well as margins. For that business, what's the for for Deer? What's the breakdown with international sales versus domestic sales, and and how much uh, of a boost are they getting from sort of the? I, I hate saying this because it's such cliche, synchronized global growth, but that's what everybody says. Well, it's true. <laughs> SGG. Yeah, true, true. Uh, so what's going on? Um, they get about two-thirds um, of their sales in North America. Now, pro forma with Vertkin, that's going to that's gonna go down you know, uh, some because you know Vertkin has much larger exposure outside. So it'll probably be more like 55 um, North America. So they actually have a, a pretty high North American exposure which is good tax rate-wise, right? So they'll get a benefit. Do we hear anything that. about dividend changes? Well, that came up. Yeah. Uh, because they're relative to their- 60 cents know, a yeah. share right now. It's it's about, um, it's under their 20% payout goal based on consensus. And the CFO basically said, oh, we're talking about it. We're reviewing it. Because it's, means, one, I mean, 1.4%. Yeah. 1. Yeah. That's yeah. not going to get anybody interested. No. And with the cash flow, they raise their cash flow expectations because things are doing, you know, doing better than they expected. So I would expect they'll do something with the dividend this year. All right, we'll have to look for that because they haven't raised it in a while. Mm-hmm. I think it was like fifty-one cents a share for a, quite a long period, then sixty cents a share. So right now, as I said, yeah. one point uh, four. And then they went into the downturn and they were conserving cash, but right. now they can let it fly. Let it fly. So. There you go. I like that. All right, thanks very much, uh, Karen. That's their new Hart. slogan: Let it fly. <laughs> Along with the synchronized global growth, SGG, and let it fly. Karen Ubelhart, our industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, shares of Deer and Company they are higher right now by more than four percent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.